0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning online. Glad you all are joining us. Uh, before we get to the message, uh, we get to do something that is just one of the most joyous things that we do as a church. Uh, we get to celebrate the ordinance of baptism. And uh, you might see that there's no water in the tank. And so you might be wondering who and how are we going to baptize? Well, There is one young gal that's going to be baptized in the second service, but um, baptism is for the church, and so we wanted you to be able to uh, think with us and celebrate with us uh, the baptism that will take place in the second service. We want to talk for just a minute about what it is, and then I want to read to you a beautiful testimony that uh, Ava Barrett wrote Um, When we think about baptism, again, I I mentioned it's an ordinance. It's something that Jesus gave to his church, one of two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of those are intended to be instructive and helpful as the church does what it does as a community of faith. Baptism is an outward sign or symbol of an inward reality, and it Revolves even physically around a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. When we baptize someone, we drop them below the water, signifying death and burial, and then they come out of the water to symbolize rising to walk in newness of life. So that picture is given to us not only as a profession of faith by the person being baptized, but it's actually a reminder to every Christian what is a reality in your life. You get to sort of relive that again and go back to that moment when you came to the end of yourself and you cried out to God to do for you what you could never do for yourself, and he did it. And then you had an opportunity To tell everyone that would listen the change that God brought about in your life as your Savior. So baptism is a profession of faith. It's also an act of obedience. Jesus commanded it. He he, uh, basically said to the church, when someone trusts me for salvation, they are to be baptized. There you go. So it's a command to be obeyed. And then it's a declaration of intent, and we struggle with this sometimes, but um, Jesus said again and again and again and again to people, follow me. Don't just believe in me. Don't just acknowledge me on one day of your life and then live the rest of your life any way you want to. He said, trust in me for the forgiveness of your sins and then follow me all of your days. So baptism is a public declaration of intent that by God's grace, I'm going to follow him with everything that I've got. Uh, Very important that we uh, remind ourselves that baptism is not essential for salvation. In other words, you can be saved without being baptized. But in light of it being a command, it's not optional either. So you and I could choose to not be baptized, but that would be disobedient. And that would miss this beautiful moment that God has for his church so that we can celebrate all that we were just singing about a moment ago. Well, with all of that, I want to read to you Ava Barrett's testimony. She'll be baptized again in the second service. Here's what she wrote. My name is Ava Barrett, and this is my testimony. I am 11 years old. I'm growing up in a Christian family, which I am very thankful for. But I know that does not make me a Christian. I have made my own decision and have decided to become a Christian because I am ready to put my faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I know that I am not good enough to have a relationship with God because of my sin, But by trusting in Jesus to forgive me, I now have a relationship with God. I love Jesus. And I want to follow him all of my life. And trust in God to lead me and guide me. I wanted to get baptized today to show others that I am a Christian. Listen to this. I also want to ask everyone at Fellowship Bible Church to help me grow in my faith. That's what we do for each other. I know that following Jesus will be difficult, but I am completely trusting in him with my whole life. Amen. Amen. We could just go home, couldn't we? (laughs) Well, let me pray for Ava and for us And ask God to use this beautiful picture of life in the church. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be gathered as your people. And Lord, I I also want to pray for anyone who might be here today, either in person or online, that hasn't yet come to that place where they would place their faith in you. So I ask that Ava's testimony might cultivate in them a hunger for you. I thank you for Ava and her her profession of faith. Lord, I pray that you would bless her and keep her, make your face shine upon her. Pray that you would help her to walk in your ways. And Lord, would you help us to come alongside her in a beautiful way so that she might grow and mature in her faith and faithfully follow you all of her days. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, with a fresh picture of salvation in our minds, let's think for a moment what baptism must have been like for a believer in the first century. We want to, for a moment, get out of our context and into the context of this letter that we have been studying together. And I want you to think about what it meant for a Jewish or a Roman person to place their faith in Christ and then to publicly profess that faith in their culture. I mean, this doesn't diminish anything that we're doing here. But sweet little Ava and all of us are going to go out of here this afternoon and we're going to probably find some great place to go eat and we might sit around and watch a little football and enjoy being together. And there is nothing at all wrong with that. But if you were a Jew or a Roman citizen and you were baptized it was likely that your family would disown you you could lose your job you would certainly be a socially out, a social outcast even beyond that you could and would be threatened physically Even executed for your faith. There was a day when you could go from the baptismal to being stoned. I know that's hard for us to get our heads around. But that was the reality of placing your faith in Christ in their context. We know that that was a common experience because of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3:12. He said to his young disciple, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted." It was just assumed. So when you were trusting in Christ, you weren't just trusting for a ticket to heaven. You were trusting for his provision, his pro- protection, his sustaining work in you as you faced a harsh world at war with God. I'm sure that every Christian was told early on that endurance would be required. This wasn't going to be a cakewalk. This is very real today. I was incredibly encouraged at the timing. Uh, You probably didn't know this, but today is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. So there are hundreds of places around the world where what I just described as a first century experience is right now. There's several ministries that uh, help with our awareness and help with people in those countries. One is Open Doors USA. You can look them up on, uh, on their website. They created a world watch list, and this is basically a list of countries that are most difficult for Christians in terms of trying to follow Christ. Here's the top five. It's also on your outline. At the very top, Afghanistan. Second is North Korea, then Somalia, then Libya, and then Yemen. In every one of these places, trusting in Christ could very well cost you your life. And I have to confess, for me, it's out of sight, out of mind. Because I don't live that reality here. Someone might mock me or call me a name or send a mean tweet or something. This is the persecution I think Paul was speaking of. And I want us to have this in mind as we come back to this passage that Jeff started last week and I'll be finishing today in Ephesians 3. So again, he's writing to a people who are facing a harsh reality of a world that is against them and against Christ. And Paul mentions that imprisonment is a part of his experience. That's actually what's prompting him to write to these folks. Uh, I, I want to remind us last week, Jeff mentioned that uh, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins a thought, and then this parentheses barges in, spirit-led, right? Where he starts to, to head toward prayer and then has to say something before he gets to prayer. So you you might read uh, Ephesians 3, 1, and then including verse 14, which picks up that thought. Everything else in between is a parenthesis. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, bow my knees before the Father. That's where he was going. But before he gets to the knee-bowing part, a thought hits him. Maybe it is that he's sitting in a prison and he's reminded of all of the difficulties he has faced. And then he begins to wonder, I want, what kind of effect might that be having on the people that I have led and served in my various missionary Journeys. So verses 2 through 13 uh, really are that parenthetical thought. We find out the essence of that interruption in verse 13. So if you drop down to the end of that segment, you find out Paul is concerned. And here is his concern, verse 13. He said, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. By the time he is writing this letter, he has been uh, incarcerated for about three years and has had several horrific things happen to him along the way. Suffering at the highest level maybe that you and I will never experience. So he has been suffering, but his concern here isn't his suffering. He is fearful that the believers in Ephesus are in real danger of losing heart. Now, what is that? What does it mean to lose heart? The word is only used six times in the New Testament. Half of them, I think, are by Paul. Generally, it means to become weary or tired, to despair. Um, Two of the other instances where Paul uses it, 2 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So there's something about ceasing to do what you would have done had you not grown weary. Galatians 6.9, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So there's something about staying at it now with an expectation that there is benefit later. The way I think about losing heart is... It's a state of mind that leads to a way of life. A state of mind that leads to a way of life. And there's a bit of a progression. So let's work through that. It would begin with discouragement, which could come for any number of reasons. But again, let's just stay in context here. Paul, who led you to Christ, is in jail. He's been beaten, shipwrecked, all kinds of stuff. And all... Because he's been declaring the gospel and that mystery that Jeff talked about last week. That Gentiles, unbelievably, are now part of God's plan. They're included equally with the Jews. That's why he's in jail. So they might be discouraged. Here's where discouragement goes. It starts with disobedience. It's just It can be small compromises, or it's a drifting away from those things that you know to be right and true. Then you begin to disregard those clear instructions, commands of God. They just don't have the place of importance that they once did. Then you can begin to sow some division because you're going your own way and that way is at odds with the way of everyone else. And you start to argue for positions and places and tribes and teams. And and then finally you can find yourself, if you have lost heart in a place of utter denial, where you just leave all that you once believed. Notice in verse 13 that Paul identifies his suffering for them as the probable cause. So it might even be that you as a young Christian, you start to look around, perhaps even as you heard that list of persecuted uh, Christians in other parts of the world, and that troubles you. You could be discouraged by that. In verses 7 through 12, before asking them not to lose heart, Paul points to the realities which led him and lead him to suffering well. That's what he wants for them, and he's going to model that in a sense. Um, actually, a lot of this section from 7 to 12 is biographical. Um, you know, we talk about connecting backward with our story, and that's not just a cute little something to do. Um, This is where story becomes very powerful because he's seeing in them a real potential for losing heart, and he knows that that's tempting for everyone, so he goes back to his story to say, here's how I stay at it. And we could summarize in contrast to what I explained about losing heart being a state of mind that leads to a way of life. Suffering well is a way of life shaped by a faith-filled state of mind. Suffering well is a way of life shaped by a faith-filled state of mind. The concern I think Paul has for them here is a short-sighted outlook on suffering All they're seeing is the immediate cost and pain and difficulty and missing a much bigger picture. Short-sighted suffering looks like this. An excessive importance given to present circumstances, which is, again, tempting for all of us. And then limited thought given to the significance of our next life after this one. That outlook leads to losing heart. Um, We should probably say that while Paul suffered greatly, he's not looking for pity here in the least. He just knows that's part of the deal. What he's doing is modeling an eternal perspective. We find that elsewhere. Just jot down 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. This is literally getting close to the end of his life. A time when a lot of people... Lose heart and don't finish well. Here's what he wrote. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All of those who have suffered well. I think Paul would say that suffering for the gospel, as he has here, is never a setback. Even though it might feel like it. Even though it might feel like it's hindering the progress of the gospel just Go back and read Philippians. He's like, hey, don't worry about me and don't worry about the gospel because no amount of persecution could ever keep it from accomplishing what God intends. Suffering for the gospel is never a setback. Uh, The third century church father Tertullian said this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. I don't know why. But in this broken world, God uses the difficulties of his people to display his grace and goodness. There's a Christian living in North Korea. The name that they gave her was Bay. This was on that Open Doors site. Listen to what she writes about her life in Christ. From the perspective of other people, our life of suffering must seem like a cursed life. However, this suffering is a blessing from our Father who allowed it in our life because, now catch this, it is a shortcut to the Father. He knows our suffering and listens to our prayers. We thank our Father who has done such great things to prepare life for us. That's suffering well. That's a long-term perspective far beyond the circumstances of this life. I can hardly think about the subject of suffering without recalling Jim Elliott's words. You've probably heard it a thousand times. You probably ought to hear it a thousand more. He died at the hands of a tribe that he was seeking to reach. Here's what he says. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Does that capture your heart? Does that allow you to walk through suffering Instead of cowering to it. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Paul offers his story and his outlook as an encouragement for those who would endeavor to suffer well. He models it for us. He says, now let's go back up to verse 7. Of this gospel, which he explained in the first half of this segment, the mystery of this unification of Jew and Gentile in this new thing called the church... Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, if that's all we had and we didn't know a thing about Paul, we would go, huh, well, that's neat. But we know Paul. We know what he was like before he met Christ. We know what it took to change him. So this is monumental. The fact that God, of everybody on planet Earth, picked him. He was as surprised as anyone could be. Let's just see how he tells his story here. He was made a minister. And, you know, I sort of think, like, I was ordained right out of college, and I sat around a room with a bunch of old guys, and they asked me a few questions and prayed for me. And I don't mean to diminish that, but, I mean, that's kinda, that was how I kind of entered the ministry. Paul was blinded by a light, knocked on his can and confronted by the living Christ. That's some kind of call. He was made a minister. That word minister is a servant or a steward, an underling. Before then, Paul was the religious boss man. He didn't answer to anybody. And then he says that 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 activity of God was a gift of God's grace which was given him. And then he repeats it again. This grace was given. Five times he's referring to this idea of a gift. He saw all that he did on behalf of the gospel as a gift. Not a favor that he did for God. But as a gift that God gave to him. He knew that that gift was unearned and undeserved. And then he says that this work of making him a ministry was by God's power. Paul was saved, transformed, and enabled by God's power, not his own. And then in the beginning here, I, I, I really wish we could somehow have heard him say this. He's like, To me! Me, of all people. Why would God ever choose me? And hear this with all the gentleness that I can muster. Why in the world would God ever choose you? That's the reality. When you get that, Jeff talked about getting the gospel, understanding the grace of God. That's it right there. It's saying, I don't have anything that I can present to God that would warrant him choosing me. It's in spite of who I am. To me, the very least of all the saints... Literally, he's the leaster. <laughs> That's less than the least. And this is not uh, false modesty. There's actually three beautiful phrases that, that, in a sense, sort of chart the maturity of Paul over the course of his life. In 1 Corinthians 15:9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. That's the best thing that he says about himself. That's in AD 55. Five years later, in the book of Ephesians, he says, I'm the least of all the saints, the less of the least. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15 in AD 62, toward the end of his life, here's what he says. I am foremost among sinners. You see, as he matured in Christ, he didn't get a higher opinion of himself. (laughs) He saw what was true about himself. And the more he saw that truth, the more beautiful and glorious God's grace was to him. It's a marvelous model. That kind of perspective will cause you to suffer well. You will not lose heart when that's in the front of your mind. Now, why was Paul given such grace? He says it was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, which he had come to know, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Go back and listen to Jeff's message last week. That's what he's referring to here. He got to disclose, reveal that mystery called the church, something that had never even entered the mind of humanity before God gave it to Paul. We don't have a way of really grasping what that might have, must have been like, but for Paul, he saw himself in light of this, this ministry he was given. He was a beneficiary and a benefactor. A beneficiary, he had received the grace of God and a benefactor, which is one who gets to dispense grace having been given it. He had two big assignments, deliver the good news of the gospel about life in Christ to those who he called earlier, he said, those who were far off, right, distanced from God's chosen community of people, the Jews. And he got to tell them, no more social or cultural barriers. You have free and clear access to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Equal standing before God in every way for every believer, regardless of ethnicity. That was a world-changing message. And then his second assignment, to enlighten all people regarding God's redemptive strategy with this mysterious new entity called the church. And he fulfilled that second assignment primarily through what he wrote, what we have in our Bibles. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates verse 9. In the words of Paul, my task is to bring out in the open and make plain what God, who created all this in the first place, has been doing in secret and behind the scenes all along. We cannot overstate how radical an idea the church is. Now, Paul's suffering was obviously a direct result of him fulfilling these assignments that God had given him, but he was full of peace and joy and contentment. Read his letters. And given his story, what he knew about himself, he was overcome with gratitude to be given these assignments, even as costly as they were to him. Uh, There's a Scottish pastor and author named Andrew Murray. He writes this. In time of trouble, say, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. That's a man who hasn't lost heart. (laughs) It's a man who will suffer well to the end. For Paul, faithfully fulfilling his ministry was his God-ordained way of contributing to God's central purpose for the church. When we think about the purpose of the church, I think we tend to think very mechanically, like, well, we get together and we sing songs and we listen to a sermon and we take care of children in the borough and, right, we do outreach and all that kind of stuff, God's central purpose for the church is to display a community of faith which could not exist apart from the grace and goodness of God. It's intensely relational. It has practical implications. But just us Doing life well together. We are fulfilling God's central purpose for the church. Yes, we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, that is an assignment that we have. But we must do it in community. Paul says in verse 10, He was given those assignments so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, not even to those on earth. Look what he says. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Just imagine the angelic host, good and evil, all sitting, waiting to see what God was going to do. He said he was going to resolve the fall. He said there would be a seed. He sends his son, and can't you imagine the angels and demons kind of getting on the edge of their seat, going, what is he going to do with him? And then he hangs him on a tree. And don't you know that The demons were celebrating for a short time, thinking they had won. When in reality, that death on the cross was the very thing that not only covered the sin of humanity, but united people who were sworn enemies and put them together into one new man called the church. Who could have thought of that but God? So, when the church lives well as God intended, they put that on display, not only for the world to see, but for all of heaven. As we do life together, I think it's interesting, uh, Professor Darrell Bach. In response to this passage said Paul encouraged living life in Christ in such a way that reconciliation is the dominant feature of church life mm. now tell me this how are we doing are we shouting to the heavenlies that we not only have the ministry of reconciliation but the message of reconciliation as Paul says In 2 Corinthians, maybe quite the opposite. When we live according to God's design, despite the suffering we face, we declare the vast and victorious wisdom of our Savior to this world and beyond. Paul tells us in verse 11... This was according to the eternal purpose that he that is God has realized or accomplished or achieved in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So let me sum up this parenthetical thought That Paul has given us this way. And this is meant to help you and I suffer well, to stay at it, even in the midst of great difficulty. Suffering for the gospel is never a setback. God is not limited by the darkness of our past. We are all with Paul. Beneficiaries and benefactors of God's amazing grace. The church, and we're not just talking about the universal church, we're talking about Fellowship Bible Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The church is God's primary means of putting the wisdom of his redemptive plan on display. So us doing church, again, we're not doing God a favor. You're not doing me a favor. We are engaging the call of God until Jesus Christ returns. Lastly, our faith in Christ alone is the key to boldness in the world and confident access to God. That's your only way there. Your faith in him. So with Paul, I ask you not to lose heart. Stay at it. God will sustain us. He will accomplish everything he intends. If we will just remain faithful to him. Instead of asking you to uh, consider a so what, I'd love for you to do that maybe kind of on your own time, but I would love to spend just a few minutes. I want to prompt you to pray for the persecuted church, for people who right now, this very minute, are suffering untold difficulties purely because they are following Christ. So however you want to do it, I'd love for you to pray out loud, turn to your neighbor or to a family member, however you want to do it, but but we're going to pray and we're going to ask the God of heaven to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they may be, and to uh, care for them. So first of all, might even think about those locations that I gave you earlier. Ask God to strengthen those believers, to strengthen their faith in Him. Go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord to give these saints boldness in their uh, moments of opportunity. When they're able to speak, pray that he would give them words that will bear fruit. ask the Lord to provide for these Christians um, a community of faith. It may just be one other Christian in an entire country but ask the Lord that he might bring those Christians together so that they might experience the blessing of living in community with fellow Christ followers. Lastly, pray that the Lord of the harvest would cause the work of their hands to bear much fruit. However limited they might be, ask the Lord to give them favor as they serve and lead and share, as they fulfill his call in their lives. Father in heaven I love what Bay said about our suffering being a a shortcut into your presence Lord would you sustain our brothers and sisters through their suffering would you be very obviously near to them hold them up and carry them through until you bring them home or you return Lord help us to be mindful of them and then Lord uh, whatever difficulties we might face today or any day in the future Lord would you help us to suffer well in a way that would honor you and accomplish your purposes. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.